Hello everyone, welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study. As always, I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain with JG Ministries, and today we're going to continue with our Bible study in the book of Mark. Last time we looked at Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy. We saw Jesus' second prediction of his death and resurrection. So today, we're going to take a look at the question, who is the greatest? So turn with me, if you will, to the ninth chapter of Mark, and we'll begin with verse 33. Let's get into it. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So we have a question about the greatness. So Jesus returned to Capernaum, where his great Galilean ministry had begun, and where his headquarters in Galilee had been located. Now this time he did not linger there long, since his public ministry in the region had ended. So Jesus instructed his disciples privately, probably in the house that belonged to Peter and Andrew. Now the disciples must have been embarrassed and ashamed of their arguing among themselves about who was greatest, because Jesus' question about it elicited only silence. And well might they have been ashamed. But instead of contemplating Jesus' passion and the suffering it would involve for both Jesus and them, they had been occupied with self-centered arguments about greatness. So when they reached the house in Capernaum, where they would stay, Jesus asked them what they had been arguing about along the way. Well, they were ashamed to admit that they had been disputing which of them would be the greatest. Now, perhaps the transfiguration had revived their hopes for an immediate kingdom, and they were grooming themselves for places of honor in it. It is heartbreaking to realize that at the very time Jesus had been telling them about his impending death, they were esteeming themselves better than others. The heart of man is deceitful and disparately wicked above all things, as Jeremiah said. The disciples, caught up in their constant struggle for personal success were embarrassed to answer Jesus's question. It's always painful to compare our motives with Christ. It is not wrong for believers to be industrious or to be ambitious, but 
When ambition pushes obedience and service to one side, well, then it becomes sin. Now, pride or insecurity can cause us to overvalue position and prestige. In God's kingdom, such motives are destructive. And the only safe ambition is directed towards Christ's kingdom, not on our own advancement. We see in verse 35 that Jesus, knowing what they had argued about, gave them a lesson in humility. He said that the way to be first was to voluntarily take a lesson in humility. He said that the way to be first was to voluntarily take the lowest place of service and live for others instead of self. Now, Jesus assumed the posture of a Jewish rabbi by sitting down, and then he called the twelve to him. Now, true greatness comes through service of others, as Jesus' own example demonstrated. This is a complete reversal of the worldly values. How important this principle is can be seen by its repetition of the Gospels. The kind of service Jesus was talking about here involved sacrifice. So to illustrate the principle in verse 35, we see in verses 36 and 37 that Jesus took a child, perhaps a child from the family in whose house he was teaching in, and first stood him by his side. Jesus then took the child into his arms, and while we were watching, he indicated that true greatness entails caring about people, seemingly insignificant people, like children, because Jesus himself was concerned about them. When one cares about such people, one is really receiving Jesus and God himself. And Jesus emphasized that a kindness shown in his name to the least esteemed, the least renowned, was an act of greatness. It was as if the kindness was shown to the Lord himself. Yes, and even to God the Father. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, your teaching probe and expose this carnal heart of mine. Break me of self and let your life be lived through me. Jesus taught the disciples to welcome children. This was a new approach in a society where children were usually treated as second-class citizens. It was important not only to treat children well, but also to teach them about Jesus. And children's ministry should never be regarded as less important than those ministries geared for adults. Now let's go ahead and continue here in our readings with verse 38. We have where we're going to see driving out demons in Jesus' name, the servant forbids sectarianism. Now this chapter, this chapter 9 seems to be full of failures. Peter spoke clumsily on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples failed to cast out 
the muted demon. They argued over who was greatest. In verses 38 to 40, we find them demonstrating a sectarian spirit. So let's go ahead and go to our readings and read verse 38 to verse 41. Follow along with me as I begin verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So it was John, the beloved, who reported to Jesus that they had found a man casting out demons in his name. In verse 38, the disciples told him, told this man to stop because he didn't identify himself with them. Well, the man wasn't teaching false doctrine or living in sin. He simply did not join up with the disciples. And John's use of the word we showed that he was speaking for all the disciples. And this is the only time Mark mentions John alone. The exorcist had been driving out demons in Jesus' name with his authority. But what irked the disciples was that, though he was not one of them, he was being successful at it. What made things even worse was that they doubtless remembered their own failure to exorcise the demon from the epileptic. The strange exorcist must have been a believer. He had to have been a believer since he... But since he was not part of the exclusive company of the Twelve, they took it upon themselves to stop this man from doing this exorcism. So the disciples were jealous. They were jealous of a man who healed in Jesus' name because they were more concerned about their own group's position than in helping to free those that are troubled by demons. And we do the same thing today when we refuse to participate in worthy causes because either other people or groups are too affiliated without denomination, or these projects do not involve the kind of people with whom we feel the most comfortable with, or others don't do things the way we are used to doing them, or our efforts won't receive enough recognition. But correct theology is important, but should never be an excuse to avoid helping people in need. And Jesus said, as we take a look at verses 39 to 40, don't stop him. If he has enough faith in me to use my name in casting out demons, well, then he's on my side, and he's working against Satan. And he isn't apt to turn around quickly and speak evil of me or be my enemy. Now, Jesus did not have a restrictive uh, a view of who could legitimately participate in his mission as his disciples did. 
Casting out of demons was done by God's power, and his power was not limited to the twelve exclusively. So Jesus told his disciples not to stop the strange exorcist because such a man was not likely to speak badly of Jesus if he performed a miracle in his name. And casting out demons definitely demonstrated that the man was not against Jesus and whoever is not against us is for us. So how does this relate to Matthew chapter 12 verse 30? Of he who is not with me is against me. Well, Jesus did not want to force people quickly into a decision about himself. He desired to give them plenty of time to decide, during which the principle in Mark chapter 9, verse 40 applies. But when the critical moment for a decision arrives, then the principle laid down in Matthew 12, verse 30 takes over. Verse 40 seems to contradict Matthew 12, 30, where Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. But there is no real conflict. In Matthew, the issue was whether Christ was the Son of God or demon-empowered. And on such a fundamental question, anyone who is not with him is working against him. Now here in Mark, the question was, not the person or the work of Christ, but the matter of one's associates in the service of the Lord. Here there must be tolerance and there must be love. Whoever is, a not, whoever is not against him in service must be against Satan and therefore must be on Christ's side. Jesus was not saying that being indifferent or neutral toward him is a good, is being committed as he explained in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, of he who is not with me is against me. In both cases, Jesus was pointing out that neutrality toward him is not possible. Nevertheless, his followers will not all resemble each other or even belong to the same groups. People who are on Jesus' side have the same goal of building up the kingdom of God. They shouldn't let their differences interfere with this goal. Those who share a common faith in Christ should cooperate. People don't have to be just like us to be following Jesus with us. And as we look at verse 41, this verse seems to go best with verse 37 before John's interruption. The giving of a cup of water is a very small act of hospitality, yet it is given to one who belongs to Christ, and this act receives God's approval because it is the same as giving it to Christ. Even the smallest kindness that's done in Christ's name will be rewarded. A cup of water given to a disciple because he belongs to Christ, well, that will not go unnoticed. Casting out a demon in his name is rather spectacular. Given a glass of water is commonplace, but both are precious to him when done for his glory. Before you belong to Christ is the cord that should bind believers together. These words, if kept before us, would deliver us from party spirits, petty bickerings, and jealousy in Christian service. Now, Luke chapter 9, verse 48. 
It states, the one who is least among all of you is the one who is great. In Jesus' eyes, whoever welcomes a child welcomes Jesus. Giving a cup of cold water to a person in need is the same as giving an offering to God. By contrast, harming others or failing to care for them is a sin, even if they are unimportant people in the world's eyes. It is impossible for thoughtless, selfish people to gain a measure of worldly greatness, but lasting greatness, that is measured by God's standards. What do you use as your measure? Personal achievement or unselfish service? Now, as we continue, we see Jesus warns of offenses in verses 42 to 48. So quickly join with me here as we read our scripture, begin with verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. For their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. For their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, verse 42 is probably better taken with what precedes it than what follows. The warning points back to the disciples' attempt to prevent the unknown exorcist from doing his work in Jesus' name, or to prevent anyone from giving a cup of water in his name. Now, little ones refers to followers of Jesus, and to sin means to prevent them from acting in Jesus' name. The offense is so serious that it would have been better for one to be drowned than to commit it. And constantly the Lord's servant must consider what effect his words and actions will have on others. It is possible to stumble a fellow believer, causing lifelong spiritual damage. It would be better to be drowned with a millstone around one's neck than to cause a little one to stray from the path of holiness and truth. Now, this caution against harming little ones in the faith applies both to what we do individually as teachers and examples into what we allow to fester in our Christian fellowship. Put thoughts and actions, or thoughts and actions must be motivated by love, and we must be careful about judging others. Now, however, 
We also have a responsibility to confront flagrant sin within the church. And as we move on, we see demanding requirements of discipleship, ruthless self-discipline. As we take a look at verses 43 to 48, we see that Jesus used startling language to stress the importance of cutting sin out of our lives. Painful discipline is required of his true followers. Giving up a relationship, a job, or a habit that is against God's will may seem just as painful as cutting off a hand. Our high goal, however, is worth any sacrifice. Christ is worth any possible loss. There is nothing that should stand in the way of faith. End of story. We must be ruthless in removing sins from our lives, and we need to do it now in order to avoid being stuck with them for eternity. So when you're making your choices, make your choices from an eternal perspective. And the remaining verses of the chapter emphasize the necessity of discipline and renunciation. Those who set out on the path of true discipleship must constantly battle with natural de desires and appetites. Because to cater to them, that's only going to spell ruin. And to control them ensures spiritual victory. Now the Lord spoke of the hand, the foot, and the eye, explaining that it would be better to lose one of these than to be stumbled by it into hell. So reaching the goal is worth any sacrifice. The hand might suggest our deeds, the, the foot may suggest our walk, and the eye may suggest the things that we crave. Well, these are potential danger spots that we need to be aware of. And unless they are dealt with severely, they can lead to eternal ruin. And does this passage teach that true believers can finally be lost and spend eternity in hell? Well, taken by itself, it might suggest that. But taken with the consistent teaching of the New Testament, we must conclude that anyone who goes to hell was never a genuine Christian at all. A person might profess to be born again and might appear to go on well for some time, but if that person consistently indulges the flesh, it is clear he was probably never saved to begin with. So the main point of these verses is that it is so important to enter into eternal life that radical means must be taken to remove whatever can prevent it. That is sin. And here sin is connected with the physical self, the hand, the foot, and the eye. Now Jesus is not demanding the literal excision of our bodily members. He is rather demanding the cessation of the sinful activities of these members. Now the word translated hell is jana. It's a Greek word from the Hebrew word Gehinnom which is the Valley of Hinnom. Now this was the valley along the south side of the city of Jerusalem, which was used in Old Testament times 
for human sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. Now, King Josiah in 2 Kings put a stop to this dreadful practice. And the Valley of Hinnom came to be used as a place where human excrement and rubbish were disposed of and burned. Now, the fire of Gehenna never went out and the worms never died, so it came to be used symbolically of the place of divine punishment. Now, the Lord repeatedly speaks of hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is quenched. It is uh, tremendously solemn. If we really believed it, we would not live for things but for never dying souls. So give me a passion for souls, O Lord. And incidentally, Christ spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven. Unfortunately, it is never morally necessary to amputate a hand or a foot or to cut an eye out. And Jesus did not suggest that we should practice such extremes as these. Although Jesus said it would be better to sacrifice the use of these organs than to be dragged down to hell by their abuse. Now, before we end, we have the tasteless salt is worthless, verses 49 and 50. So follow along with me here as we try to finish chapter 9. Now, verse 49 begins, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, with these strange words, Jesus pictured the serious and eternal consequences for sin. To the Jews, worms and fire represented both internal and external pain. What could be worse? Now, this admittedly, on of the most difficult verses in Mark, it has over a dozen different interpretations. Of these, two commend themselves, both taking their cue from the insertion by a copyist of the words, which uh, are, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt, which is an allusion to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Now, one interpretation sees the sacrificial salt as a symbol of the covenant relationship that the children of Israel had with God. For every disciple of Jesus, the salt of the covenant is the divine fire of the Holy Spirit. Every follower of Christ, in other words, will receive the Holy Spirit. The other interpretation sees in the fire the trials and the persecutions of the disciples of Jesus. Now, in the previous verses, the various members of the body must be sacrificed, if need be, to enter into the kingdom of God. And as salt always accompanied the temple sacrifices, so fire, persecution, trials, and suffering will accompany the true disciples' sacrifices. If this is Mark's meaning, this saying must have had special meaning for the persecuted Roman church. 
It helped them understand that the purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as foreign to their vocation as Christians because everyone will be salted with fire. But verses 49 and 50 are especially difficult. We examine them clause by clause, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. The three main problems are, one, which fire is it referred to? Two, what is meant by seasoned? And three, does everyone refer to saved, to unsaved, or to bow? Now, fire may mean hell or judgment of any kind, including divine judgment of a believer's works and self-judgment. Now, salt typifies that which preserves, it purifies, and it seasons. In eastern lands, it is also a pledge of loyalty, of friendship, or faithfulness to a promise. Now, if the word everyone means the unsaved, then the thought is that they will be preserved in the fires of hell. That is, they will suffer eternal punishment. If the word everyone refers to believers, the passage teaches that they must, one, be purified through the fires of God's chastening in this life, or preserve themselves from corruption by practicing self-discipline and self-renunciation, or thirdly, to be tested at the judgment seat of Christ. And ever sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. This clause is actually quoted from Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. And we can also refer to Numbers chapter 18 verse 19 and also 2 Chronicles chapter 13 verse 5. Now salt is an emblem of the covenant between God and his people. It was intended to remind the people that the covenant was a solemn treaty to be kept inviolate. In presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, we should season the sacrifice with salt by making it an irrevocable commitment. So in this verse, verse 50, salt must be understood in a domestic setting, not in a religious or a ritual one, as in verse 49. Salt played an important role in the ancient world. It was necessary to life, and it was also used as a preservative to help food from spoiling. But salt could lose its saltiness. Jesus was warning his disciples not to lose that characteristic in them that brought life to the world and prevented its decay. That is, not to lose their spirit of devotion and not to lose the self-sacrifice to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Jesus' disciples could only be at peace with one another where that kind of devotion instead of self-interest prevailed. Now, salt is good. Christians are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. God expects them to exert a helpful, purifying influence. As long as they fulfill their discipleship, they are a blessing to all. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Salt without saltiness is valueless. A Christian who is not carrying out his duties as a true disciple is barren 
and ineffective. It's not enough to make a good start in the Christian life. Unless there is constant and radical self-judgment, the child of God is failing to achieve the purpose for which God saved him. Have salt in yourselves. Be a power for God in the world. Exert a beneficial influence for the glory of Christ. And be intolerant of anything in your life that might lessen your effectiveness for Christ. Have peace with one another. Now, this apparently refers back to verses 33 and 34, where the disciples had argued over which one of them was the greatest. Pride must be put away, and it must be replaced by humble service for all. So to end this chapter, to summarize verses 49 and 50, that seem to picture the believer's life as a sacrifice to God, it is salted with fire. It's mixed with self-judgment and self-renunciation. It is salted with salt that is offered with a pledge of unalterable devotedness. If a believer goes back on his vows or fails to deal drastically with sinful desires, then his life will be savorless. It'll be worthless and it'll be pointless. Therefore, eradicate anything from your life that would interfere with your divinely appointed mission. And you should maintain peaceful relations with other believers. Lastly, Jesus used salt to illustrate three qualities that should be found in all of his people. We should, one, remember God's faithfulness. Just as salt, when used with a sacrifice, recalled God's covenant with his people. Two, we should make a difference in the flavor of the world we live in, just as salt changes a meat's flavor. And lastly, thirdly, we should counteract the moral decay in society, just as salt preserves food from decay. When we lose this desire to salt the earth with the love and the message of God, we become useless to Christ. Thank you for listening. Food for thought for today. Till next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.